You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today is Jeff Frankie. Anna's out this week, so with us today is Andy Zoll. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, designed and developing today as well, and each of us have many years covering the manufacturing industry. Each week, we cover the five biggest stories in manufacturing and the implications they have on the industry moving forward. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you use. Finally, to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Andy, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Andy, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, you're welcome. It's good to be here. Right? It's a new, a new experience. It's good to see you in person. I, uh, I might be the last of my generation to appear on a podcast, so I think we can cross that off and it's good. It's good move on to other that. things. <laughs> Jeff, how's it going this week? Good, good. Good to have a new teammate amongst us here in the office. Right. So, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's only been since last March. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our top story this week, or not our top story, our fifth most popular story this week is Pandemic Claims Another Manufacturer. Ecolab manufactures infection prevention solutions to more than 40 industries, everything from food processing plants to hospitals. This week, the St. Paul, Minnesota-based company announced plans to shutter its plant in Columbus, Mississippi. The facility manufactures products used in surgical suites. According to a company spokesperson, Ecolab's surgical business took a big hit last year as elective surgical procedures were canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Jeff, this is a large company, but it's still you don't like to see this. No, it's unfortunate. And I think there's a couple of different trends sort of at play here. Mm-hmm. First of all, when all this pan- crazy pandemic-related stuff started going on, we saw manufacturers really taking a look at everything and seeing how they could become more efficient. Looking at their internal processes, which in a lot of cases led to a lot of great investment in new automation and other technologies like augmented reality and, and 3D imaging and things like that, that is a positive that we wanted them to get more involved in, and the pandemic gave them a little bit of a push to do so. Mm-hmm. And as a result, that technology has been pushed forward and, and made some nice advancements. The other thing that obviously they looked at was supply chain, continued to look at supply chain in terms of how they can get everything closer and be more responsive, not just to internal needs, but obviously to their customers, you yeah. know. We've seen some reports as high as like 20-some percent of U.S. manufacturers that are looking to possibly reshore some of their operations. Not necessarily move out of China or anyplace else, but bring some of that over here. Well, when you start looking at processes and you start looking at how responsive you can be to market demands, you see some opportunities to potentially consolidate. Yeah. And I think that's what happened here with Ecolab. They took a hard look at things. And again, we mentioned some of the elective surgeries and other areas that they function in seeing a reduction in activity, and as a result, they're consolidating a bit. Yeah, I think what's also interesting here with the article, they pointed out they've got this, I believe it's a 71,000-square-foot facility that is going to be vacant now. Mm-hmm. And just driving in here, when you look at all of the commercial real estate that is empty, and a lot of it's retail-based, but you just kind of wonder how this is going to play out. If folks are consolidating, but then we also see some of that reshoring, is that going to balance out or... Are we going to see some of these industrial parks with a lot of open inventory, um, which is kind of a negative economic dynamic people don't want? Obviously, you want people in there doing stuff. But if it's shuttered and it's vacant for long periods of time, that can become a real deterrent for just attracting new business and new people coming in. So a couple different things going on here with Ecolab that was was kind of interesting to shed a light on. Yeah, well, and I did notice that, you know, this is a facility that they acquired as a result of, you know, an acquisition. I think it was back in 2007. Um, 
And it did, you know, it sucks because it's 61 jobs that are, uh, you know, 18 people are still going to stay on working from home, but 43 people are out of a job. Um, I also think, you know, the economic conditions did allow people to kind of reconsider everything, but Ecolab has had some rough years. Like uh, they did $11.8 billion in revenue in 2020, which is a lot, but still down 6.14% from 2019. And while that could be COVID-related, the company had a modest increase in 2019, but an 11.6% drop in 2018. So, Andy, it hasn't really been smooth sailing for this company for a while. And if you look at what they what the company said to local media in Mississippi, um, they they basically kind of laid out that this was yes, the pandemic, you know, hit their bottom line, but they also were, you know, that prompted them, like you said, to to take a look at at everything, and then. Um, you know, that prompted them to, to take this step to move their production elsewhere. So, mm-hmm. um, it was seemed worded carefully. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So it struck me a little the wrong way just yeah. to, you know, if you're going to overhaul your operations, okay. But, um, seems maybe a little disingenuous to yeah. blame the pandemic for this when there's, oh, okay. as you've said, there's. You know, it's been topsy turvy before with this company, and yeah. you know, if you want to make that decision, okay. But to to blame the pandemic seemed a little shaky to me. Well, it's I think it's been easier. We've seen it. Uh, there was a cheesemaker in Wisconsin. There have been other companies that are like, COVID just killed us. Yeah, and then people look at it and they're like, No, we think you were dead already. <laughs> um, but so the other thing that kind of stood out to me is that so there are forty so forty three workers that are going to essentially be out of a position. But, you know, the standard PR speak, well, they were offered the opportunity to apply for another position within the company. How many times do we hear that? And how many times do you think that actually happens? I think it depends on what your job is, right? Yeah. And and what other, how close that opportunity is. Were these, were these folks, again, this is Missouri, I believe? Uh, Mississippi. I Mississippi. Believe. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you're going to, so yeah. I mean, hey, depends. opportunity to get out of Mississippi and move to Minneapolis. Not bad. Pretty different. <laughs> um, different yeah. place. You know, what's interesting here too, though, is you know, looking at the the 2008 recession, mm-hmm. there was a lot of we worked in metal, a lot of metalworking um, customers and, and breeders and stuff like that at that point. And what they did to come out of this, they diversified into medical. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting to see a medically focused manufacturer. See, yeah, even in the midst of a pandemic, there wasn't enough medical business for us. Yeah. Because um, that's usually considered somewhat recession-proof. And it was it was weird because they're like medical and the just least. I mean, we're talking like when you talk about medical device manufacturers and stuff like that, these are literally the curtains that they put up, you know, yeah. so that way you can only see your wife's face as she's birthing something, you know, or uh, something. Uh, my beautiful son. No, <laughs> interesting terminology. Yes. How much sleep did you get last night, David? Oh, never enough. <laughs> never enough. Uh, our fourth, fourth most popular story this week: autonomous van rescued after traffic cone induced meltdown. And really, all of those things happened. A Waymo One driverless van recently panicked when it encountered some traffic cones. The van tried to turn right, and the lane was blocked with construction cones. The vehicle called for help and roadside assistance pledged to send someone immediately. Before an actual human arrived, the van tried to correct its position, ultimately making it worse and blocking the entire lane of traffic. A construction worker then started moving the cones, and the van tried to move again, sending another distress call. Waymo admitted that the situation was, quote, tricky, but at least the rider got a free ride and a somewhat viral, if not overly monetized and chaptered video out of it. So the technology still has some gaps. And 
Uh, Andy, did you watch the video? I I watched it. It's 35 minutes long. Yeah, I tried. So um, I was expecting, this is a dated reference, but I was kind of expecting the Sideshow Bob stepping on the rakes <laughs> oh, gag from The Simpsons. Like That's timeless. The, yeah. The car, nice. you know, goes up to a traffic cone and says, oh, backs up, tries again. Nope. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly just kind of sitting there thinking for yeah. a lot of minutes. Mm-hmm. So um, skimmed is probably more more apt to describe how I how I looked at the video. Um yeah. but uh, you know, it's just uh it, it just shows that, you know, there were always going to be hiccups mm-hmm. with with self-driving technology and you know, it's good this is one we can kind of laugh at a little bit because yeah. um this is in Arizona and there's a famous uh accident in Arizona from 2018 in a in an Uber self-driving car. So um, when these things go awry, it's nice that they're able to go awry in a relatively safe manner. Yeah, it was a cone and not a pedestrian. Correct. Yeah. Um, Jeff, I was. I will admit I didn't watch the entire thing, too, because I jumped into that video and I saw a hundred different chapters on, along a 30-minute timeline. And I'm like, yeah. that's just a lot of ads. Um, but, I mean, still got a ways to go with the technology. Absolutely. And the thing, the reality is, excuse me, <clears throat> we talked about this a lot with Tesla and the autopilot. If you're going to put it out there, mm-hmm. you, you're going to have to deal with this stuff. And the reality is any kind of blowback that Waymo gets, in my opinion, it's warranted. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're, like I said, if you're going to put it out there, you're going to put it live on the streets and stuff like this happens, anything negative that comes from it is something you got to re- remember, just deal with. I mm-hmm. mean, it's going to be part of it. And one of the things that I found, I was a little curious to see how much of a history Waymo had with some of these types of incidents. They released a report last fall, excuse me, <clears throat> And from 2019 through September of 2020, there were 18 crashes involving these test vehicles. Mm-hmm. Now, not all of them were Waymo's fault. Yeah. Some of them were other drivers, but there's also 29 near-miss collisions. Those are the ones that don't get reported, mm-hmm. but still obviously an issue. So, yeah, I mean, we still got a long way to go, and I think the responsibility does fall on these companies to be able to respond maybe a little bit more quickly as well in getting them – Fixed because if I'm sitting behind this individual and it's slowing me down, I'll admit I do not have a ton of patience when it comes to that. Especially yeah. if I can see clear traffic all around me and here we are stuck and there's nobody even in the driver's seat, not there's knowing what's no going on. Off. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> you got to fly by him and there's no one to flip off. There was a story. Him. There was a different story um, where a reporter and a photographer from the AP um, took a ride in one of the uh, Waymo driverless vehicles, and uh, there was nothing like this. Mm-hmm. but they couldn't get the car to come up to the curb to pick them up. They were blocking somebody in a grocery store parking lot mm-hmm. who got flipped off <laughs> um, or they flipped off the non-driver. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, that was a safe, mostly non-eventful ride. But in the middle, they were like, well, they did take a turn that we probably would not have. So right. we're still working on it. Well, and so this was the 50, 54th ride for Joel Johnson, the guy who was in it. Uh, he posts very well-documented rides on driverless Waymo vehicles. He's now on, now on ride number 56 of what he calls a hobby and talking about dating yourself. But to see that this is an entire channel, just Joel rides Waymo. <laughs> it's, uh, that's beyond me. Can you imagine being the construction worker who is standing outside in Phoenix in what I can assume is 8 million degree weather? And has to go move in a traffic cone for a robot car carrying a YouTuber. Well, and then as <laughs> like yeah, and then as uh, soon as you move the cone, the like uh, the car like creeps out yeah, you. Yeah. Just like whoa, I'm trying to help you, bud. Um, 
No. That's it, who I empathized with here. Yes. And I, Good point. That yeah, is well said. I mean, uh, Johnson is not a Waymo employee. He stresses that even though he's putting out a ton of Waymo content. And these rides, so the rides cost about five bucks, and then they're 80 cents a mile. Yeah, not cheap. No, well, I mean, I don't know. It, I mean, it sounds like, A, if it's, get, if it's getting you from A to B, it's not doing it fast. Because there is uh, some documentation as to talking about not, they don't, it won't take specific turns. It's not that it won't always turn into a, uh, it's not that it won't take left turns, but it won't take high risk turns. Yeah. So uh, it's not going to get you there anywhere, anytime fast. Um, but, you know, for Johnson, this was his most viral video of any, because I think it was Wired that picked it up, right? Uh-huh. Beyond are, you know, the push that it received from any Correct. So, so is this his way of just avoiding those awkward Uber driver conversations, you know? I mean, with, oh, with man, if we could take them out of the equation. Once this is solid, I'm never taking an Uber again. I don't know. I enjoy those guys once in a while. Once in a while. <laughs> once in a while, yeah. There's a, I mean, there's a reason, but and there's always a story. There's always a story as to how they got there. Um, Straight Shooter on the website said, a lot of effort is going into creating driverless cars, too bad they don't seem to be putting a fraction of that effort into creating cars people like to drive. Everyone should own one. Is all you think everyone should own a car? I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if, you live a, shooter. if you live in a city, yeah. like, I mean, I I haven't missed commuting for this past year, I will say. There's a lot of construction going on back here, so... Um, I can see the appeal of maybe living in a more urban corridor and taking the subway once in a while. Also, once I mean, once they figure out the driverless stuff and it's not taking turns too hot or stopping for traffic cones, mm-hmm. uh, you don't need to worry about whether you enjoy driving it or not. Right, and yeah. you know, it's uh, one of the thing about one of the things about Uber is you know, say they're picking you up a little bit late night, you do kind of sometimes need that driver to call you and ask, "Wait, where are you exactly?" No, I'll be right out, right out. Hold on one second. No. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, All right. Our third most popular story this week. Mexico City is sinking. Geologists think areas of the world's second largest city could sink as much as 100 feet over the next 150 years. The phenomenon is called subsidence, and it could be a big problem for nearly half of Mexico City's population. Subsidence happens when too much groundwater is extracted, causing the land above it to compact and sink. The sinking isn't uniform, which creates a huge issue for roads, bridges, sewer pipes, and other infrastructure. And while it might seem that either injecting water into the foundation or ceasing extraction of it would be a solution, neither are practical options because the clay soil won't take liquid and the population depends on the natural aquifer beneath Mexico City's 573 square miles to survive. Many areas have continued to sink even after water extraction was stopped. Jeff, this seems like an infrastructure problem that's not going away. Yeah, and to Mexico City's defense, they've known about this for a while. Um, even as like going back into the 1800s, they knew something weird was going on. Yeah. The problem is they continue to expand the city. They continue to build on top of this gradually depressing area. Mm-hmm. So, and it just continues to be an issue. And the the tough thing is, you almost you want to. Um, kind of go after Mexico City for being reactive about a lot of this stuff, but they really don't have a choice because you can't really tell there's a problem until something shifts so dramatically that it causes a problem. And it is starting to. Um, In the U.S., we see this in the San Joaquin Valley out in California. Between, I think it was, let's see, 1925 and 1977, they think that area actually sunk like 28 feet. Ooh. And I know... It was already a valley. (laughs) So... (laughs) 
so there, and there's just not a whole lot you can do. And the, when I'm reading this kind of story and it's a natural phenomenon, there's not a lot of solution other than, I don't know, depopulating the city, yeah. which isn't an option. Um, we've got guys like Musk and Bezos. They want to send people to Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, Musk is drilling, you know, the boring company underneath trying to figure out a way to make tunnels underneath the ground. We've got all this infrastructure stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not just Mexico City. It's throughout the U.S. That's obviously been a topic of this podcast for the last couple of weeks. I know it's not sexy, and Anna brought that up last week, but, man, we, we have got to do some stuff. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's around the world. It's not just the U.S. We've got some brilliant engineers out there who are thinking about putting more technology on your smartphone. Hey, let's figure out how we can make sure, you know, water pipelines don't bust because the earth is moving. Or poison you. Something. No, know. it's, uh, I mean, we talked about that when we talked about the Mars story, where it's Mars is a hell of a place to die. Probably just try fixing this place first. Um, no, uh, to that point, though, it's not a natural phenomenon. Like, this is happening because they're tapping the resources out of the land, which is True. causing it to sink. I mean, people need to drink, but, uh, uh, Zaw, and I believe this isn't, I mean, it's not unique to Mexico City or California. No, there's, Something like, I think I read 1.6 billion people affected by this. Um, Indonesia's building a new capital city from scratch because Jakarta is sinking into the ocean, Um, not just from climate change, but from the same issue, the the water table. And um, it's just, you know, inches per year. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, again, the sad thing is this is kind of baked in because the population needs water. They're not going anywhere and you can't inject water back underground doesn't work that way mm-hmm. um so and you mentioned these um maybe less less sexy less practical or more practical engineering puzzles that we face um around the world another one is uh water technology i mean i think three percent someone should fact check this but i think three percent of the water is fresh water on mm-hmm. earth um there needs to be a better that that's that's going to be a tricky problem to solve the water Soon. wars Yes, mm-hmm. that's because hundreds of millions, if not billions, other people of other people affected by uh, water shortages, and that problem's not getting worse either. So that's a uh, that's a problem that also needs solving before maybe we try Mars. Yeah, well, that's one of those are things Bill Gates was working on. I mean, he's been in the news lately for some other reasons, but yeah. some of the stuff that his foundation was working on, and he was doing almost as side projects in terms of like with the the toilet and with other um, water purification strategies. Yeah. Those are the things we need more energy put into, it yeah. would seem. It turns yeah. out that his waterless toilet is really just a preemptive image cleansing strike against his, you know, philandering. Allegedly. It's a different story, David. <laughs> uh, the other thing, so when I was looking up subsidence, I saw that in the U.S. there are more than 17,000 square miles in 45 states that have been directly affected by subsidence. Primarily in California, like you had mentioned, Texas and Florida have had hundreds of millions of dollars in damage as a result of this over the years. But what's crazy is so we're just talking about subsidence as like slow sinking, slow sinking. Like uh, it reminds me of the farmhouse I grew up on where we used to race cars through the kitchen because you could put them in where the dining room at the kitchen and they would race to the cabinets because, you know, there'd been some shifting. Sure. Uh, but the other big thing with subsidence is sinkholes. And there's nothing that terrifies me more than sinkholes. It's also not nearly as sort of a sinkhole gets crazy numbers on our website. Not nearly like so gradual sinking is happening again. Anyone yet? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Not till the sewer pipe bursts. Yeah, yeah. not till the sewer yeah. pipe bursts or the uh, skyscraper, you know, starts to tilt. Um, the second most popular story of this week. 
An employee dies in an accident at a mattress factory. Irene, <clears throat> Anita Irene Coaster was a 51-year-old maintenance worker at Purple Mattress in Grantsville, Utah. On May 13th, she was injured while performing a repair and died as a result of her injuries. Coaster was dead by the time emergency personnel arrived on the scene, but they extricated her from the machine. The accident was caught on video, which should help authorities and the company figure out just what happened. Jeff, this was a tragic, tragic accident. Horrible. And you don't want to downplay what happened here at all, especially for this woman and her family. But this does feel like another one of those situations where there's a skills gap issue. Mm -hmm. There's a training issue. This was the fourth incident at this facility since January. Okay. So there is a pattern here. I don't know how long this woman worked at this facility, but potentially when you look at those reoccurring themes, what we've seen in the past is there was not adequate training. Mm -hmm. There was a rush to get things done, which again is a factor of safety training where you understand what the, what the dynamics are. And when we start looking at a lot of these accidents and these situations that are seemingly very avoidable, you can't help but think about the workforce and mm -hmm. the dynamic, the, the problem that we have right now in the manufacturing workforce. We've heard these stats before, but they're worth repeating. According to a recent survey from Deloitte and the Manufacturing Institute, there's as many as 2.1 million manufacturing jobs that'll be unfulfilled between now and 2030. This could cost the U.S. economy upwards of a trillion dollars mm -hmm. in lost, lost opportunities. So it's another trillion dollar problem. We talked about infrastructure. Now we've got these jobs that are going unfilled. Right now, a little bit of that is pandemic related, whether people are using that as a reason not to go to work or relying on some of the, the funds that are available to them, or it doesn't make economic sense for them to go back to work. We need to get this figured out. And yeah. I think once we get a workforce that wants to be there, is trained to be there, understands all the precautions that need to be taken with their job, um, hopefully we can see a decline in these types of incidents. See, I don't see this as a skills gap problem. I see it as definitely a training problem and definitely a lockout tag out problem. Or there's something, having it be the fourth incident since January at the facility, there's something that the company is not doing to protect it is its workers. Like, you know, I think you say skills gap and sometimes you think that's on the employee where that's on the employer. Agreed. In, in Agreed. the lockout tag out technology that was likely not being used, and I mean, maybe it was bypassed. You never know. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, it, it training first and the emphasis of that, um, I think, needs to be the primary point. Um, yeah, Zell, um, sorry, Andy. Um, there's not a lot more on this uh, situation other than the details that were shared. No, the, the company and authorities are being tight-lipped. Obviously, um, there'll be an investigation. OSHA is going to investigate, as they always do. Um, but as we've mentioned here, um, Purple, this facility, doesn't have a great record over this year, um, at the very least. Mm -hmm. um, and you'd hate to think it would take something uh, this tragic to kind of um, get either regulators or the company to to take this kind of thing seriously. Yeah. It, I mean, it really hit me close to home because my mother was a maintenance woman in her 50s, you know, and it just like, you know, this more than a worker, you know, she was part of someone's family. And that is absolutely tragic. And I guess I didn't realize how dangerous of a job general maintenance and repair uh, workers have. Uh, it's the 14th most dangerous job in the U.S. based on the number of fatal injuries per 100,000 workers. The median annual wage is $37,600. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, other than truckers, they suffer the most non-fatal injuries of any uh, per year of any other position. Well, and, you, and that's how many were reported. Yes, exactly. I mean, we've, we've all worked in these facilities, whether, you know, when I was in college and stuff like that during the summer, 
yeah, there's a lot of this stuff that doesn't even get reported. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just kind of swept under the rug. So that probably would even add to those numbers. And again, just to reiterate, I agree with you, not blaming this woman yeah. for what happened. This does come back to the fact that this facility or this company is not taking enough time to properly train people and right. put them in a position to be safe. Exactly. No, there's uh, they're putting people in a bad situation. And uh, I think just their track record this year has been showing that. Um, but also, so truckers, non-fatal injuries was like 77,000 a year. And that's all because they won't let them use the bathroom. No, uh, <laughs> but they're in a rush. They're, they're in a rush. And it was 23,000 for, it was something like 23,000 for maintenance, maintenance workers. And then it was in the single digit thousands. Like it was light years more dangerous. Yeah. I mean, well, it depends on the facility too. I mean, some of these plants, man, it is. I mean, I can remember some of the things my brother was doing working at like a, a chemical company. Mm-hmm. And part of the issue is this just becomes grained into sort of the the SOP of the day. This is just how we do it. This is the way we've always done it. Whereas there have been advancements in safety technology that either just aren't being implemented for a cost reason, there isn't time, people are time. afraid to shut things down and put these things in place, or people just don't do them. I mean, we've also been to facilities where everything's there for them. I mean, you yeah. walk past the buckets full of safety glasses and nobody's wearing them. Yeah, or the harness. I always remember seeing the harnesses as they're up there. I'm like... Shouldn't you have that on? Like, no, no, no. It takes too long. It's one buckle. Yeah. Maybe two. I don't know. Uh, our most popular story this week. Uh, 1,600 layoffs coming to a Jeep plant. The fallout from the global computer chip shortage continues. Jeep is one of Stellantis's top-selling brands. Despite their popularity, 1,641 workers making Jeep Cherokees in Belvedere, Illinois, could lose their jobs. Stellantis attributed 11% of losses in Q1 to semiconductor shortages, and the company thinks it could be even worse in Q2. The company is cutting an entire shift at the Belvedere plant in late July, and this could be the start of something awful. The plant has been idled since March, and the car maker hopes the shortages stop by the second half of the year, but a company spokesperson doesn't think that will be enough to save the workers in Belvedere. Andy, I was a little perplexed by this just because... Jeep is such an in-demand brand right now. It is. This this plant is uh, just south of us here, down down 94. Um, it's a huge facility, um, and they're making these uh, extremely popular models. Um, everyone is acutely aware, I'm sure, that, that trucks and SUVs are fueling um, the car market in this country. Um, and uh, it's interesting because uh, General Motors said earlier this month that they are trying to weather this chip shortage by getting everything they can into those vehicles, those trucks and those SUVs. And you'd have to assume, you know, you hate to assume, but you'd have to assume that Stellantis is trying to do the same thing for these cars that are selling so quickly when when prices are so high as they are in that market. Um, and the fact that they weren't able to do it, weren't able to keep this shift on is uh, troubling to say the least. Yeah, we, dev- we had a couple of people comment on the website about how they tried to buy a Jeep during the pandemic or earlier and they got it's uh was seven grand off of msrp they tried to go back for another one and it was like twenty two thousand over so it is a it is a hot market for new cars right now jeff automotive is so weird right now um and it's, it's just crazy trying to keep track because two things struck me when i looked at this story obviously unfortunate that this many people are facing unemployment the other thing is we're hearing about all this investment 
that's right now from the automotive companies that are coming from product development, obviously not as much from the manufacturing side for electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Big story this week was Ford coming out with the electric F-150. Yeah. So there's all this money going into developing that. We also ran a story today talking about Ford doing stuff with electric vehicle battery production. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was interesting, not in this story, nothing from the UAW. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a little bit of a connection there because right now with all of this push towards EVs, one of the things from a labor perspective that is worrisome is it actually will require most likely less labor mm-hmm. to put together these these electric vehicles than there is right now for an internal combustion. So the fact that there was no UAW comment when you're talking about 1,600 workers from an automotive facility that's been around for quite a while, yeah, you kind of wonder if UAW is sort of hedging things a little bit because they're seeing all this come out um, in terms of electric vehicles, they know they've got some battles ahead of them. Mm-hmm. So there will be some interesting things going on, seeing how these folks, these companies, these big automakers respond once the chip shortage does get figured out, whenever that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, who knows when that's going to be. But then will there be more or less of these types of layoffs just from market factors with yeah. the products that they're producing now? Yeah. I did see that, you know, this plant has been idled since March. Yeah. And so these people will essentially be out of work from March until July 26th. And I mean, you do talk about the skill shortage. And I mean, at least hopefully there are jobs out there where they can find work somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, is that too optimistic to think? It's in Illinois. That it, part- it's a very tight labor market and it's always uh, a tight labor market for manufacturing. So you would you would hope so. Yeah. The average UAW worker I saw is making $31 an hour. So... And if you've got some experience, it's probably a little bit more than that. So you do wonder, too, just they're looking to take care of their families, and they've got, they're used to one level of income. You mentioned before the average for a maintenance manager. Mm-hmm. Non-UAW is much lower than that. Mm-hmm. So that's difficult for these folks, too. They're, used, they're in a certain place economically. To go into a similar type position in the industrial field, potentially making a lot less, that is, that's hard. I mean, that's, I mean, that's probably why they've kind of remained idled, just because yeah. they're probably making more doing nothing right now. Um, So what I was interested to see is how production cuts have increased demand in the resale market. Uh, And so while new cars are in short supply, people still want something that's new to me. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, used car prices have jumped 21% since April 2020, and 10% of that was last month, April 2021. Wow. Used car listings from May 2021 on True Cars website are up 32% over the same time last year. So Consumer Reports says, buy now or wait it out. Uh, Andy, I feel like you bought your new car just just before the gold rush here. I, they always, you always hear that as soon as you drive your car off the lot that it loses, you know, whatever percentage of its value. And it uh, doesn't seem like that is the case much anymore. <laughs> so maybe yeah. a prudent investment for once yeah. right. on my end. They, uh, you know, it's been a while since they've come asking for our Toyota Yaris. It's been a long time, but we started getting the postcards again. Did you know we will give you, I mean, it's still like what they were going to offer us like 10 years ago, five years ago, but it's still like, oh man, they have got to be desperate for cars. Yeah. I mean, and actually, uh, we had a shop, I know it's anecdotal, but I feel like there are more used car lots popping up right now. We've had two go in real close to our house and it just seemed odd to me. I don't know. Uh, Jeff, great time to sell. Sell high and just wait it up. <laughs> well, it's weird because I think I must have been just just at the start of this. I had a leased vehicle that expired in August of last year. And anytime I'd gone back to the GM dealership and said, hey, looking to buy, I'd have options. Just tons of options, new, used, whatever. 
they came back with like three vehicles, you know, just yeah. so it was even starting then mm-hmm. and it is getting tighter. So the folks that do have inventory, yeah, they're doing well right now and they're probably doing some serious markups as they should. Yeah. I mean, if you can do it, go for it. I mean, at what point do we start stripping the technology out of the previous model just so we can load it into the new one? How See, valuable doesn't really is that work chip? that way anymore. I mean, our first car, we could get away with that kind yeah. of stuff. No, we just could... we tear it down to that chip, get it out of there. You're going to do the, like the Johnny Cash song, you know? He's smuggling <laughs> parks out of the, the GM uh, plant for like 15 years to yeah. put together his car. I know that catalytic converters are hot right now, but uh, maybe it's the chips next. You just got to find them and, you know. It's just an interesting entrepreneurial out. opportunity right there. <laughs> right? Uh, people with a skill set can... <laughs> Reach me at david at IEN.com. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to our next segment. In case you missed it, the stories that were are, uh, could have a big impact on the industry but weren't so popular with the readers. Um, Andy, what's your uh, in case you missed it this week? Uh, I don't know how much of an impact this will have on the industry, but I love this story because who doesn't love a good mystery and government uh, secrets story? I mean, um, So the city of uh, Shenzhen is uh, just north of Hong Kong in China. And it's basically China's San Jose, for lack of a better comparison. It's their tech hub. Mm-hmm. And there's um, a 70-story skyscraper. And on Tuesday, it just starts swaying. And they evacuate the building. They evacuate the surrounding area. It's, of course, densely populated. There's crazy videos of people running away from the shaking building, and uh, which is fine, except, I mean, not fine, but... That's one one part of it. The most interesting part is that they don't know why this happened, and they apparently still don't. So they've ruled out a seismic event. They've ruled out um, any – or they say that there's no damage to the building or the surrounding streets. Uh, They say the weather was – I think fine was the (laughs) word that was used in one of the reports. Yeah. Um, So it's all just kind of rumors um, at this point that the inspectors – uh, cleared the building, they said, or you know, cleared the building as far as safety protocols concerned. They said it was within uh, building safety codes for the country, and they actually started letting retailers back in. Um, the U.S. consulate said maybe stay away from there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, How much swaying are we talking? I didn't. Apparently, within government standards, that's <laughs> all. That's all I could gather. Um, right. Now there was there were reports. I, th- I think of. Uh, employees who worked in emergency management in the city and they were speculating that it was like a combination of things uh there's a subway line underneath maybe temperature changes inside and outside and maybe wind i didn't get a read on how windy it was that day um but i'm uh i wonder if you guys want to throw out any wild speculation as to why this building was shaking or uh how lucky you feel if you had to go back to work after oh, inspectors my. cleared that building. Well, from now on, I'm going to say that I was not clumsy. The building was clearly swaying Correct. and shaking. Um, I mean, theory number one's got to be subsidence. <laughs> you just want an excuse to use that word again. I just, the fact that I know how to actually say it now, I'm more really <laughs> I think you're three for three. Yeah. <laughs> Which we, can, we jinx them? can we jinx them right now? Which I think we did. We're good. Really rare. Um, I don't know. Jeff, what do you think? What's... Uh, What's making a sway in China? Um, maybe China has like lured Godzilla away from Japan somehow. I mean, was that not your first thought when you heard of a bunch of people of running, screaming of from course. a building? Yeah. I just I, I just watched a marathon. What was the one uh, Pacific Rim? What were those things called? Uh, 
those big yeah. creatures popping out of the ocean. Not good. Uh, not, uh, Goji's, uh, I can't remember. I've seen that movie only in Free t- Stars. Yeah. Free t-shirt to anybody who emails the podcast first with nice. the name. I'm only of thinking the of Gojira. Um, Taigu or no, that's the theme of a restaurant. Oh, Never mind. Um, but I don't know. This is pretty crazy. I mean, yeah. Would, how would you feel about having to go back into this building to go to work? That'd be, it reminds me a little not bit of stuff. Money. We covered in San Francisco too with that apartment complex that mm-hmm. was like leaning. Yeah. <laughs> it was were, leaning, but the, and the, the same situation where they couldn't get their money back, even though they bought multi million dollar high rises yeah. because it was within spec of leaning. Yeah. You know, like they couldn't have a marble sit on the ground. Yeah. But they're like, oh no, you don't get your money back. Because- the spec from like 1915 when, you know, the rulers were yeah, pretty straight. Yeah. It's pretty good. That's San Francisco, right? So the, you figure the lean standard on a fault line is a little more robust than. Oh, uh, I'm not an architect, so don't. I mean, there's don't, all sorts don't of. Don't write at me about it. There's also, I mean, it's China, so you can float any conspiracy theory out there. You there want to know what the government um, mm-hmm. is doing, you know, and covering up. So. I definitely thought that too. Where it's like, looks good. It's on the ground. <laughs> it's on the ground. No, the government says it's fine. Yeah, they did say that uh, the public would be informed of the results of the investigation at the uh, appropriate time. So we had the weather was fine, and you'll be let know why the building is shaking under your feet at the appropriate time. That's good. I mean, hopefully sooner than later. Not you after they're all trapped underneath it in rubble. It's going into the Indiana Jones warehouse. You know. All the files. Box yeah. it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm so lost on the Pacific Rim thing. I can only get to Jaeger's because I know that's what the robot was. And it's just, it's right there. And it's really yeah. troubling me. Um, my, in case you missed it this week, was pretty cool. In my perspective, you know, because it has to do with Nikola Tesla. And anything with him is just, uh, I'm really into. Nikola Tesla's valve could actually have applications today. He invented the valvular conduit about 100 years ago, but researchers from New York University's current universe, uh, Institute of Mathematic Sciences found that the valve is not only more functional than they previously realized, but is potential applications today. Now, it's now known as the Tesla valve, and it could harness the vibrations in engines and other machinery to pump and mix fuel, coolants, lubricants, and other gases and liquids. Researchers, the researchers say Tesla's device is an alternative to the conventional check valve, which wears out over time. The man was incredibly ahead of his time and misunderstood. And Jeff, I just found this cool. It is. And what was really kind of interesting is some of the engineers that they had comment on this were just geeking out too. You could tell they were total like Tesla fanboys, if you will, Mm -hmm. just being like, man, this guy was incredible. He came up with this. And the applications, in terms of reliability, when you think about aircraft, when you think about military vehicles, um, Pretty amazing, and the fact that this was when did he come up with this? Hundred so, years ago. Yeah. Hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely ahead of his time. It's unfortunate in doing some reading about Tesla that there were not more um, emotional, mental support um, opportunities there for him because he was obviously a genius. Just had some uh, had some issues, shall we say, in yeah. terms of uh, getting along with people and communicating a lot of what he had going on. Definitely on the spectrum. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, So the Tesla valve is a series of interconnected teardrop-shaped loops that pass fluid in only one direction with no moving parts. The valve works best when the flow is not steady. When it comes in pulses or oscillations, the device converts it into smooth and direct output flow, mimicking the actions of like an uh, AC to DC converter that transform alternating current to direct current. So basically he was doing with fluidics what he was doing with electricity. And it was just, I want to be in that room. When they actually make the prototype and they're like, oh, my God, it's working. 
This is uh, from the Applied Math Lab at NYU, so a little above my pay grade. But <laughs> uh, it uh, it did make me wonder um, what other things um, we may have missed from people who are clearly operating on a different mental plane than mm-hmm. uh, than even you know. It's it's not that they knew more; it's just that they thought about things differently. So it's just uh, it's wild to think what we may have missed. Even going through their past published patented work like this. Well, I think I mean that's a I mean that's a really cool point because we hear that all the time from people in the design engineering community. So many people have built a better mousetrap, but A can't get out of their own way. Or B just marketing just disasters. I mean, there's so many things where that is really fascinating. You should probably sell it to somebody yeah. because you're not capable of getting this off the ground. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, that's not a new development. No, I mean, I, we've met these guys. It's, yeah. it's unfortunate. They've sent us their stuff. Yeah, it's, I can remember working on the automotive side. This guy came out, and he was pitching these wrenches. And if you looked at them, there was nothing special about them, but they just had a better grip. They, they, they were. They were fantastic wrenches. But to your point, he was so hung up on the fact that these are the best, that should be enough, and it's not. Mm-hmm. You have to have that push. You have to have that corporate infrastructure, if you will, in terms of sales and marketing, distribution, all of that behind you to really make a lot of this work. And the sad part is some of this stuff such as this could just really be socially transformative. I mean, mm-hmm. it could just have such an impact, but we do get caught up a little bit. So it's it's not just the idea. It's also being able to understand everything that needs to go around the idea to, mm-hmm. to bring it forward. Uh, what was your In Case You Missed It this week? So I think it's, it's probably safe to say we have an editorial staff of five. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty safe to say I am probably the most conservative um, Republican-leaning type of the group, uh, without a doubt. Yeah, that's not a... That's not a reach at all. No. No. So my story, though, was actually about this first long-haul flight. It's Air France and KLM. And they had 16% of the fuel on this flight, which was going from Paris to Montreal. It was basically composed of what they're calling eco-fuel or a sustainable aviation fuel. It was basically waste cooking oil. Yeah. Now, I'm not the biggest like environmental guy. I'm not an opponent by mm-hmm. any stretch, but I'm probably not the biggest proponent, activist, whatever you no, want to say. It makes sense financially and mechanically. Yeah. yeah. But this is cool because you're basically taking a waste product and turning it into a viable fuel source. Mm-hmm. And for a real reason. This isn't, you know, the hippie neighbor down the way who kind of like retrofitted his um you know, Camry uh, to run on McDonald's uh, French fry oil. You yeah. know, this is a real application here performing a real function. And just to put it into perspective, some of these big fl- uh, planes that they use, they can use upwards of a gallon of fuel a second Ooh. when they are running across the ocean. So when you just look at the fuel savings that this is going to create, we talked about being cleaner, mm-hmm. more efficient. I thought this was just fantastic use of a lot of these technologies we've been talking about for a while trying to find out, okay, how is this going to make sense? Is this economically viable? Where can we use this? Boom. Um, mm-hmm. I thought this was just a really cool story. And if it smells like a fryer, it's in the air. I mean, you, you must have been out, Andy, when uh, there's one pizza place in particular in, in the Madison area that uses the recycled fuel, and you smell them coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's been, uh, you know, you don't really, at least I don't, think about um, aerospace um, in the the climate change fight as much as you do um, cars or or industry um, but it's a huge as you were saying it's a huge part of it and there's a lot of pressure particularly in Europe um, to clean that up a little bit um, and obviously uh, um, as uh, 
I can't remember um, which company executive mentioned it, but they're decades away from any viable sort of alternative to, you know, basically burning fuel mm -hmm. to fire these things all over the world um, and demand's only going up. So anything you can do to resolve this while that, you know, far off technology kind of catches up, that's that's good on my end. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm down too. And I mean, you're not the most conservative by a landslide. I think we're all pretty... You guys are coming closer to me. I mean, mostly Anna. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeff, what's your uh, final thought this week? It's kaiju. I had to Google it. Kaiju? Yeah. Okay. We'll still do the t-shirt if anybody... Oh, I should have known that. I, I know should. that word. Yeah. Um, how are we going to grade Andy here? What do you, should, we, should we critical? Should we wait till we're done? I kind of feel like we want to do it right now, though. I feel sort like of our vibe. he's done a great job. Done a great job. When I got up this morning, my only thought as every day was don't get fired. So if I said anything to yeah. get fired, just cut that in post. <laughs> See, we would, have, we would have a problem there because David has actually said things on these podcasts that would make him more susceptible to being fired than anything you've done. Yeah, so, I hate that that was my initial thought too. It's like, man, bar, if I'm still here, you're fine. Depending on your perspective, <laughs> the bar has been set either high or low. I'm not, you know. I'll yeah. take it. That's fine. Yeah. The other final thought is I just finished an amazing book called The Ghost Soldiers. It's by Hampton Sides. It's about this POW camp in um, um, the Philippines that was liberated. It's an amazing book. Great story. If you're into w uh, World War II stuff, highly recommend it. Very good. Uh, Vietnam's my war. That's uh, the stack of books on my shelf. That's, yeah. that's my war. Um, that's a weird sentence. Uh, Andy, what's your final thought this week? Um, I... Uh this was fun. I enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, excited to welcome Anna back next week. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that was my final thought, just not to get fired. Yeah, no. It's, good work, man. Yeah. Thank you. Job. I mean, it's, it's good. See, I will say um, you can have a war um, as long as it's not the Civil War. I think the Civil War is fascinating, but if you say you're a Civil War guy, that has a lot of implications, I think. I agree. My, oh, man. My uh, the school system I grew up in just hammered that war, so I felt pretty good about it coming yeah. out. Yeah. yeah, actually, I just uh, I just got a book from my grandfather on um, Iwo Jima, and as we were looking through stuff as to keep or not, I'm like, since I only know this one by name, maybe we'll keep this one just so we could go through a little bit more. Um, but no, you did a great job, man. Thanks a lot for coming. Yeah, of course, anytime. All right. Uh, finally. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Andy, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Anna, we missed you. Hopefully we'll see you next week. And please make sure to subscribe to our newsletters. Kind of seems like a weird weird, weird place to shoehorn the goodbye to Anna in there. You know, subscribe. Hopefully she survived the, um, the trip with the three little ones there. Yeah, nothing like she, a Hopefully family, she's coming back unscathed. Family trip with three small children. Also known as just like, I'd rather just stay shut in. You know, <laughs> my vacation is I get to close the door for a day. Um, anyway, I'm David Manti. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.